Austin. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. So this morning, we're continuing in our series, Behold Our God. And as you know, we've been looking at the scriptures each Sunday to see what our God is like, to see who He is. And we've already learned some incredibly important truths. So we started by saying God is knowable and He invites us to know Him. And then we learned that God is triune, so He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet He's one God, which leads naturally to what we learn next, that God is infinitely great. He's beyond our comprehension. He's completely holy. He Himself is love. And then last week, we saw that God is a jealous God. Not jealous in a sinful way, but He's jealous for His people to be faithful to Him. So we've already learned so many great truths, and today we come to another important truth that the Bible teaches about God, the truth that God is sovereign. So that word sovereign and the concept of sovereignty, um, those aren't terms that you probably hear every day. Um, in fact, besides conversations that are directly about God, um, we usually only hear those words in, in context when we're talking about states or, or nations or rulers and that sort of thing. But if you already understand the word sovereign in, in those contexts, states, nations, rulers, the, the truth is you're already well on your way to understanding the biblical teaching that God is sovereign. So just like a sovereign state, you know that phrase, a sovereign state? That's a state that has the independent authority to govern itself. So just if you understand that meaning, then you can understand that God has the independent authority to govern the universe that he's created. And if you understand that a king or a queen is the sovereign or the ruler over their land and their people, then you can begin to understand that God is the supreme ruler. He's the only sovereign, the wise king over everything and over everyone. So God's sovereignty is his grand, powerful authority and ownership over all and in all. So Psalm 103.19 says that God's kingdom rules over all. So that's grand, powerful authority, kingly authority. Deuteronomy 10.14 says that heaven and earth belong to the Lord. So that's ownership. And don't be thrown off by, by those words, in all. I'm not saying that uh, the birds outside and the mountains and the cactus and you and I were all a part of God. Um, that is the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. You see, God is the creator. He's not part of his creation. So what I mean when I say in all is that God's sovereign power, it's not just over all things, but it's in all things in such a way that our sovereign God's power 
holds everything in existence together. So Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, by him and in him, and him is talking about Jesus, by him and in him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 3 says, again, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this is a, a high and lofty topic. It's infinitely beyond what we can completely grasp when we talk about sovereignty. But it's also something that's intimately connected to every part of our lives, for there's nothing that God is not sovereign over. And so my prayer today, as we look at this topic, is that you'll be encouraged to trust God through this message. So let's pray that way together right now. Father, in Jesus' name, we, we come to you and we ask that you would assist us by your Holy Spirit, enlighten our eyes to know the truth that you've revealed in your word. And Lord, change us and lead us into greater walks of trust and obedience with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would invite you to take all that, everything that we just discussed about sovereignty, and think of it as a springboard. And then from that springboard, from that framework, we're going to jump together. We're going to dive into the middle of God's word. So we're going to look together today at Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. And I would encourage you, even though the words will be on the screen, I would encourage you Open your Bibles to Isaiah 44 and 45. I think it will be helpful today for you to be able to see this whole passage, this whole unit together. Um, we're going to be jumping into the middle of Isaiah's message, and we're jumping into a, a time of crisis in the history of God's people, Israel. So let me just give some brief background, and, and then we'll read the word. The people of Israel and Judah had failed to be faithful yet again. They had worshipped other gods. They had oppressed the poor and the needy. They had given themselves to drunkenness, to idolatry, to greed. And just a few chapters before our text today, in chapter 39, Isaiah delivered a hard message from God. He said, Judah and Jerusalem, you're going to be carried away in captivity by Babylon. And in God's sovereignty, that happened as part of God's judgment and discipline for his people's sins. So as we look at this text in Isaiah 44 today, know that Isaiah is writing with the Babylonian captivity in mind. He knows it's coming, and so he's speaking to those who would be a part of it. And this passage has a lot to teach us about those historical things, about what happened in Judah from the 8th to 6th century B.C., but it also has a lot to teach us about God. In fact, through this whole passage, it's first-person perspective, and it's God that is speaking. So we have a lot to learn about Him. In fact, this passage is part of a larger unit where God is making a massive case 
that he is superior to all the idols. So let's read together Isaiah 44, and we're going to start in verse 24. I'll read if you would listen. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So as we look at that passage, I believe there's, there's three important ways that are really clear that our God is sovereign. So first, if you look at verse 24, God is sovereign over human life, including the process of conception and childbirth. Look at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. So we can explain from a scientific perspective what happens when, when sperm meets egg, and, and we can analyze what's going on through, throughout a pregnancy, but if we only describe that in biological terms, we show that we don't know the whole story. Because as you know from Psalm 139, God says he knits us together in our mother's wombs. That's the same thing that Isaiah is saying here. He's saying God is sovereign over human life, including conception and childbirth. And this is a beautiful truth. But it's also a hard truth. Because there's, there's some of us here today who were gifted with children when you weren't expecting it. So you know very clearly that God is sovereign over human life in this way. And then there's others of us here today who, who have been trying for children for years only to learn that we're not the sovereign rulers in this area. But since God is, it's right for you parents to thank God for your children and it's right for you and any of us who struggle to have children, it's right for us to cry out and lament and say, how long, O Lord, because he is the one who is sovereign over this area. So then Isaiah is going to move from this intimate area of God's sovereignty that is, is wrapped up in the, in the very fabric of human life, and he's going to move to something grand. He's going to say, God is sovereign over creation. Look at the second half of verse 24. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth 
by myself. So do you see how God is He's highlighting his unique power here by saying, I alone, by myself. So in the ancient Near East, in the time when Isaiah is writing this and before, uh, false religions held to a belief that said the origin of the world happened as a result of many gods. In fact, some believed that a couple gods got together and had another child god, and somehow the birth of the child god corresponded with the, the creation of some part of our natural world. So we're, there were these crazy thoughts, and here God, it is clear that he directly contradicts that sort of false belief. He says, there, there's no partnering with anyone or anything in my creation. God says, I created the heavens and the earth alone by myself. God alone who is sovereign over creation. He spoke and brought it to be, and he still today upholds all creation, as we heard from Hebrews earlier, by the word of his power. Next, as we move through this passage, Isaiah teaches us that God is sovereign over the future. So let's look at verse 25, and, and remember here the topic sentence from, uh, from verse 24 is, I am the Lord. So God's describing himself. So I am the Lord who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So in Isaiah's time, there were so-called diviners or wise men, people who would, they'd look at signs and omens in the sky and on the earth, and then they, based upon what they saw, they would then predict the future. Um, just open your newspaper or take a drive through the city, and you'll see that there's lots of efforts that are of a similar nature going on today. But in the end, all so-called wise men, diviners, wise women, they're made fools, Isaiah says. The future does not depend upon anyone's signs or omens. The future does not depend upon psychics or horoscopes. The future rests in the hands of our sovereign God who is before all things and after all things. He is the beginning and the end. God is sovereign over the future. He knows it perfectly. Therefore, it's only God who has the power to reveal his word to his servants and then bring that word to pass. And so with God's future in mind, Isaiah is going to show how God is sovereign over cities, rulers, and even nations in the following verses. So if we think about these three things, if God's sovereign over human life, over creation, and over the future, really what we're saying is God is sovereign over everything. That's Isaiah's view. And yet I think this passage wants us to think even further and with an understanding that God is sovereign, I think there's another truth 
that this passage will show us, and it's a truth that's great news for all of us who believe in Jesus. And, and this truth is the big idea that I want you to get today. So, so here it is. The sovereign God will accomplish His purpose. Let's look at the next words in this passage. Let's remember they're still connected to I am the Lord. So God's describing Himself. I am the Lord who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. And, and look at the end of verse 28. Saying of Jerusalem, God says, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, remember, Isaiah is writing with a certainty that the Babylonian captivity would take place. And the captivity did take place. It's one of the most awful events in all of Israel's history, maybe in, in human history. But when God says this, that the temple, that Judah and Jerusalem will be rebuilt, what he's saying is, the Babylonian captivity will not last forever. God's word here means that there will be redemption for God's people from their captivity. And we can't just spiritualize this. God is talking about a real-life historical time-space captivity and a real-life historical deliverance that he's promising. So if you were one of the exiles in Babylon, can you imagine how this promise from God would fill you with hope? And if it's, if it's not clear that this is God's redemptive purpose, God makes it even clearer in verse 27. Look at what the Lord says. I'm the Lord who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. So here, that, that word for deep, the Hebrew word for deep, it reminds us it's a similar related word to Exodus 15, where we hear about Pharaoh and his army sinking in the deep or in the depths when God delivered Israel from, from slavery in Egypt. So clearly, God is bringing to mind the fact that he's already redeemed his people from captivity and slavery once. It's incredibly clear that God has a redemptive purpose in mind. And the passage will go on to explain exactly how God will bring about his redemptive purpose. Let's look at the next two verses. So, I am the Lord, from verse 24, and then 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So on the surface, this, this might seem inconsequential or even strange to you, but the naming of this person Cyrus, it's actually the high point that this whole passage builds up to. 
See, historians and scholars know that Cyrus of Persia was one of the greatest conquerors of history. And history shows that in 539 BC, Cyrus led a successful campaign against Babylon. And history also tells us that Cyrus had a policy that allowed exiles to return to their homes and rebuild their cities. So that's exactly what God says Cyrus would do in this passage. But let me tell you why this is the climax of the passage. Isaiah wrote these words nearly 200 years before Cyrus ever came on the historical scene. So God is demonstrating that he is, he's the one who's sovereign to accomplish his redemptive purpose, and he demonstrates this by saying beforehand what he will do, and then by doing it. So if we had time today, we could read through the rest of chapter 45, and we could see a detailed description of what exactly Cyrus would do, how God would use him, and those details, they'd match what we know of history, how Cyrus moved and, and, and conquered. And then we could also read uh, 45 verses 9 through 13. We could see how God anticipates a question of anybody who would say, how would you use Cyrus? He doesn't acknowledge you. And we'd see that God will he'll reaffirm his sovereignty. He'll reaffirm that he's the creator. And he'll say, I'm wise and I am free to do as I please in accomplishing my redemptive purposes. And the whole section together makes it clear that Yahweh, God, He is unlike any false god that the world has ever come up with. He alone is the sovereign with the perfect knowledge, with the wisdom, with the infinite power and the freedom to accomplish His redemptive purpose. And if Isaiah's hearers, and, and if we as readers, forgot that that purpose really was redemptive, there's several clues that are very clear left in the passage. Let's look at just a one. In chapter 45, verse 4, God says that what he's doing with Cyrus, he says, this is for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen so God's use of Cyrus is in the redemptive interest of his people. And God's interest in his people is really God's interest in the whole world because God's people, Israel, were called that all nations might be blessed. And so years after Cyrus, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, was born in restored Judah. And later he was crucified outside the restored city of Jerusalem. And then he rose again in the same re region. And Jesus is the Savior of all people, as 1 Timothy 4.10 says, especially those who believe. In fact, Paul will say in Acts 17 that God creates all people 
and that he sovereignly determines allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And according to Ephesians 1, we know that it's only in Christ that we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, see today that God's redemptive purpose is set forth in Jesus and it is sovereignly fulfilled in Jesus. Isn't it good news? Isn't it wonderful news to know that the sovereign God will accomplish his redemptive purpose? Isn't that good news? But someone may ask, they may say, well, does God's sovereignty then mean that God causes or decrees evil and sin? Well, the Bible teaches that everything that ever happens is in the oversight of the sovereign God. But the Bible also teaches that God has allowed Satan a sort of freedom in which the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And the Bible teaches that the whole creation is under the curse of sin. So, not just us as humans, but all of creation is broken and groaning for redemption. So our bodies break down and tragedies occur. And we know that, that God has a redemptive purpose and that one day the enemy will be eternally judged. He will never steal, kill, or destroy again. And we know that one day this broken creation will be replaced by a new creation in which there, there's no struggle, pain, evil, sin, or sorrow. But the Bible emphatically denies that God causes sin. In the book of Jeremiah, another prophet who warned God's people of judgment, the people of Judah, they took their children and they burned them in fire as a sacrifice to a false god. This is a horrendous act of evil. And two times God addresses this in Jeremiah. In 19.5 and earlier in 7.31. And listen to what God says. God calls this awful sin something which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. And he says basically the same thing in chapter 7. So God makes it clear that this awful evil did not originate with him in any way, shape, or form. But then you also know the book of James. Chapter 1 says, when we're tempted, we don't look and, and try to find God behind our temptations. James makes it clear when we're tempted, we're being dragged away by our own sinful desires. And then Jesus Christ himself, he doesn't hesitate to attribute the source of sinful thinking and the source of sin and evil 
to Satan himself. Look at Matthew 13 and Matthew 16. So it does remain a mystery why God in his sovereignty permits evil and sin. But to say that God permits is quite different than saying that God is the one causing evil. The sovereignty of God is actually seen in how he can use evil that he didn't cause for good, for the fulfilling of his purposes. And someone might ask another question. They might say, well, well then does God's sovereignty negate human freedom and, and moral responsibility? Well, the Bible's actually very clear about this. It says that Yes, God is completely sovereign. But also, humans are fully responsible for their choices, which include free choices to either reject God or sub to submit to Him in response to the convicting and drawing of the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 62, uh, 11 and 12, makes this really clear. It connects God's power, His sovereign power, with His love, which reminds us, we can't elevate one attribute above the other. They all work together. But then it also connects God's power to human responsibility. So hear these words from Psalm 62. Once God has spoken. Twice I have heard this. That means this is really important. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. That power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. So here we see God's power, his love, and human responsibility all together. They don't contradict each other. And a final question someone might ask is, well, then if God's sovereign over everything, can, can he really respond to us in any meaningful way. In fact, just this week, I read a, a wise and godly evangelical writer who said that if God is really sovereign over everything, it's really not accurate to say that he responds to us. But brothers and sisters, please don't believe that. Over and over and over, and over and over in Scripture, we see God acting in responsive, dynamic relationship with people. When you go home today, read Psalm 81. You'll see that God is responding to His people. It's common for Scripture to, to have God say, Oh, that my people would return, or oh, that my people would obey, or Oh, that my people would repent. Then I would, and you can fill in the blank, and he tells you, then I would respond. So when we pray to God, we're expressing our faith in his absolute sovereign power over everything. But we're also expressing our belief that God is a God who will respond. And this is right. This is biblical. In fact, the prayer book of Israel, the book of Psalms, did you know the most common type of psalm in the book of Psalms are lament psalms? 
more than any other psalm are the laments, showing us that God wants us to cry out to him to ask for him to respond in our need. So as we close today, I want to encourage all of us to live in the light of the truth that the sovereign God will accomplish his redemptive purpose. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've submitted your life to him, then that truth should bring you great peace, should bring you rest, should give you a sense of trust in God. But if today you're resisting God or if you're rejecting him, then God's sovereignty is not good news for you. Because God will accomplish his redemptive purpose, which includes the judgment of sin and wickedness. So please, today, trust in Christ. Believe in Jesus. Trust that he is the sovereign redeemer who has paid the price for your sins. And Christian, if you're here today and you're resisting God, you're walking in disobedience, know that God's sovereignty also is a fearful thing for you because his redemptive purpose is to discipline those he loves and it is a fearful thing to deliberately walk in disobedience. So God is the sovereign ruler of all. And this is, so this is a majestic teaching that pictures God as the highest of all kings with authority over everything. And the beautiful thing about the good news of Jesus is that in Christ, we are daughters and sons of God. And so we get to approach and address the highest, most powerful, majestic, sovereign king, we get to address him as Father. So as we close, I'd invite you to, to bow your heads. And let's listen to some familiar words of our sovereign Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. As you listen to these words, ask him to teach you to trust the sovereign God for all of life, even as he will demonstrate in this teaching. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but 
deliver us from evil. Amen.